My name is uh, Gary Hansen. I'm the campus pastor over at Meredith Drive. I was able to be here a few weeks back when we worshiped together as a result of uh, the things that are going on at the basement over at the Meredith Drive campus. And if you've been a part of uh, gathering together at the bridge, there was a time where pastors would often uh, preach at both campuses. So the opportunity to do this this morning feels familiar. It also is a, a change of plans because Pastor Suzanne was scheduled to preach this morning. But the beauty of team ministry is that um, a few weeks back when Pastor Johnny preached here, Pastor Josh preached at Meredith Drive, and I had the week off. And when Pastor Suzanne uh, came to me and said, there, there are a few things that have been added to her plate as a result of the events of this last month and asked if I was willing to preach, I, I jumped at the opportunity. Um, because I'm excited about what we have to hear this morning. Uh, part of the process that we have entered into this uh, sermon series over at Meredith Drive. If you remember when we worshiped together, we did a, a centering prayer. That's been something that we've done each week over at the Meredith Drive campus. Uh, I was going to do it this morning until Pastor Johnny said he almost fell asleep uh, in the middle of it when we did it here. So I said, okay, we, we won't do it again for his sake. Uh, but I do want to center us in on what God is inviting us into this morning. So please pray with me. Lord God, You are making all things new. And from the very beginning, when You called forth order out of chaos, and You proclaimed that it was good, that it was very good, from the very beginning of time, as, as we know it, as those who have been created in Your image, from, from the very beginning to the very end, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, Lord, You have been bringing about restoration and redemption and renewal. Lord, You desire to renew those who are gathered together in this place this morning. You desire that all who have been created in Your image will hear Your still small voice whispering to us. You desire that from the highest mountain to the deepest, darkest valley, You will be revealed. So give us eyes that see You. Give us ears that hear You. Give us hearts that beat in rhythm with Yours. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in Your sight alone. For You are our Rock and our Redeemer, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to navigate some ground this morning that we all navigate. And I'm not just talking about folks who happen to be at the bridge on July 29th, 2018. I'm talking about ground that everyone who has ever had the breath of life fill their lungs has had to navigate this ground that we're going to navigate this morning. It's the ground between expectation and reality. The ground between what we hope for and heartbreak. The ground between what we desire and the ways in which we are disappointed. You know this ground, right? You've navigated this terrain before. You know how tricky it is. So I come to this morning with, with some excitement, some anticipation, because if you've been following along, if you've been a part of this sermon series, you know that for the past few weeks it's gotten pretty dark. 
right? For the people of God, the, the northern kingdom, the, the ten and a half tribes that went by the name of Israel were led off into captivity in Assyria. And actually, you heard last week, Pastor Johnny did a great job of reminding us that the Assyrians went about destroying culture. They wanted to make sure that there was no identity of the people that they conquered that remained. They wanted to assimilate them into all becoming Assyrians. Well then, last week, the, the Babylonians laid siege on Jerusalem and the, the southern kingdom of Judah, the tribe and a half that remained in Jerusalem, and, and systematically the Babylonians hauled the Jews off to exile in Babylon. But they went about it differently. Remember, they, they allowed the people that they controlled to maintain some of their cultural identity. That's where you get stories like Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You, you hear in the Psalms again and again the longing of the Jews who are in Babylon for Jerusalem. There's anticipation, a looking forward to the, the people want to return to their homeland. So when the Babylonians are overthrown by the Persians, when you hear Medes and Persians, think of the Old Testament book of Esther. Think of Ezra and Nehemiah, those that returned to Jerusalem. Well, the Medes and the Persians allowed those who they controlled to return to their homeland, and they didn't do it because they were nice. They did it for very altruistic or very selfish reasons. They wanted to have those who that they controlled to be as productive as possible economically. So they knew that if the people return to their homeland, they're likely to produce more goods that then would benefit Persia. That's where we pick up the story this morning. If you brought a Bible along, you can turn to Ezra, the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. And then we're going to jump to chapter 3 and pick up the story at verse 10. If you'd like, the words are going to be projected on the screens up front as well. So hear the Lord, the word of the Lord from Ezra Chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord. The God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, may be the God to, may be their God with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. Now we jump ahead, Ezra chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. It's about two years' time that has passed between what we just heard and what we're about to hear. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. 
with praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. So I have some expectations when I come to prepare for this message this morning, right? I have in my mind the sense that there's going to be excitement. There's going to be joy. There's going to be anticipation. After all, the the people of God have been held captive in Babylon for 70 years. And during that time, if you read the Psalms, you hear just how passionately the people are looking back to Jerusalem, how their hearts long to return to the place of their identity to go back to the land, the land that had been prepared for them, the promised land. This is their home. And if you're anything like me, when it comes to homecomings, you get excited to return to people who who you are familiar with, to return to a place that is near and dear to your heart. There's excitement. There's anticipation. There's expectation. And then you return, right? Right? And you have to navigate this land somewhere between expectation and reality. Because if your homecomings are anything like mine, they become messy in a hurry. And it became messy in a hurry for the people of God upon the return to Jerusalem. You see, the land that they had once been promised and had occupied, the land of David and Solomon, the land where the first temple that Solomon built was displayed in all its splendor and glory so that all the nations would see how faithful and powerful the God of Israel was. The stories that were told about how Moses, who, who led the people out of Israel, were they were led by the Shekinah. That's the Hebrew word for the very essence, the presence of God in, in fire and cloud. And when you read the book of Exodus, you read about how the presence of God was in the meeting tent. And then when Solomon dedicated the temple that he built, the, the Shekinah fell again and the cloud, the fire, the presence of God was seen and felt. This was the place that the people longed to return to. It was the center of a thriving city. The thing is, that city is laid in waste. The thing is that that the the elders, those who had seen the the previous temple are aware of, is that the Shekinah won't fall again until we hear a story that is provided later in the book of Acts. Big picture, that's where we're going as a church. We're preparing a sermon series that will guide us through the book of Acts and what it means to be the church. And it's built on the foundations of this sermon series, living on God's time. Well, the question that is asked here by those who have returned to Jerusalem, the exiles who have longed and looked forward to this this homecoming, those who have seen the former temple weep. 
they weep bitterly. So much so that, that Ezra says that you couldn't distinguish between the weeping and the shouts of joy. And as I did my digging, as I did my preparing with my expectations of what I would hear myself say this morning, I found a reoccurring theme. Because most of my commentaries are written by folks who were raised in a culture the same that many of us were raised in. A culture that says that uh, tears are, are okay, but only for a little while. We live in a world that likes to compartmentalize and say there are good things and there are bad things. So, so the joy in this story is good, but, but the tears make us nervous and, and they're bad. And that's a lot, that's the direction that a lot of the commentaries I read took. Saying how the, the, the elders were, were less than faithful to be weeping that day. That their tears were an indication that they didn't trust God the way that they needed to. But I don't think that's what's being said at all. I don't think that's what's being said because I think the God who has revealed Himself to the people through Abraham, the God that we have been walking with along with the people of Israel, this is a God who is patient and persistent. A God who is present to His people. A God whose perspective is one that is bigger and wider and deeper than our own. And each week over at Meredith Drive, I've been reminding people that God's time is always, 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 always rooted in relationship. Can we get that up so that we can be reminded that God's time is always rooted in relationship? And when it comes to relationship, if you've ever been in a relationship of any sort, you know that it doesn't boil down to good and bad. Things aren't easily compartmentalized. You know that relationships are messy. You know that relationships are paradoxical. That you can be weeping one moment and laughing the next. It's part of what it means to be fully alive. It's part of what it means to navigate this land between expectation and reality. We know that we have hopes and we have heartaches. We know that we need to hold that tension if we are to be healthy, not just individually, but as a body. You see, I think, I think that we see here upon the return to Jerusalem a glimpse of what God desires for His people to experience. God desires for His people then and God desires for us now to be a place where there can be weeping and there can be joy simultaneously where we don't need to hide our emotions or put on a mask, but we can weep with those who are weeping and we can rejoice with those who are rejoicing. We can see one another where we are at and the reality of this world that we live in. Those tears weren't tears that displayed a lack of hope by the elders who saw that the temple wouldn't be what it once was. They were acknowledging reality. Just as the shouts of joy and eager anticipation were acknowledging a reality that the people were experiencing. You see, the one who the people are going to be anticipating from here on out is the one that they have been anticipating from the very beginning in the story that we've been walking along with. But when the temple doesn't have the Shekinah, the very presence of God, the people start asking the question of what they anticipate in a different way. 
What will it look like when God comes, when God sends His Messiah? What will it mean for us as a people when God is with us, as God has promised, if it doesn't mean cloud and fire? What will that feel like? What will that be like? And in the absence of relationship, what do we do? We do what the people of God did from the time of Ezra and Nehemiah up until the time when God kept His promise and took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Jesus of Nazareth, the long-awaited Messiah, during those 500 years, the people of God became really, really, really good at keeping the rules. In the absence of relationship, we turned to rules and regulations. They kept score the Pharisees and the Sadducees come onto the scene. They were very sharp about who was in and who was out. Jesus comes onto the scene, though, and He reveals how God wants a whole lot more than, than a rule-keeping people. God wants a people with whom He can have a deep and everlasting relationship. Walter Brueggemann, Pastor Johnny has been quoting him every week, so I thought I'd continue the, the trend. But Walter Brueggemann is an Old Testament scholar, right? That's where he spends his time. That's where he, he finds the most life in his, his understanding of who God is. But he's always reading the Old Testament with the lens of, of the Messiah. He is a follower of Jesus Christ. And from that lens, Brueggemann makes this observation. I want to share it with you now. Brueggemann says this, Jesus' concern finally for the, was finally for the joy of the kingdom. That is what Jesus promised, and to that He invited people. But He was clear that rejoicing in the future required a grieving about the present order. Jesus takes quite dialectical two-age view of things. He will not be like one-world liberals who view the present world as the only one, nor will Jesus be like the conservative who yearns for the future without concern about the present. There is work to be done in the present. There is grief work to be done in the present that the future may come. There is mourning to be done for those who do not know the deathliness of their situation. There is mourning to be done with those who know pain and suffering and lack the power or freedom to bring it to speech. The saying is a harsh one, for it sets this grief work as a precondition for joy. It announces that those who have not cared enough to grieve will not know joy. It's a paradox there. A paradox that flows through the Old Testament and a paradox that has lived out in Jesus the Christ. The one who says, if you want to gain life, you need to lose it. The one who says that blessed are those who mourn because they care enough to grieve and they will experience joy. It's something that our culture doesn't know what to do with. We often shame the expression of grief. We often, if we find ourselves in a place where there's weeping and joy happening simultaneously, are uncomfortable by one and navigate to the other. 
Brueggemann is observing and here in this moment that I anticipated being in a time of pure joy, the return to Jerusalem, that there would be unfettered expression of gratitude by the people of God. In that place, there was weeping that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be, that we haven't arrived yet at our final destination. So my wondering this week, my wondering for you and my wondering for me is one of tempered impatience. That's a phrase that has worked its way into this sermon series within my own heart to live with tempered impatience, eager to see the day of the Lord come, but knowing it hasn't happened yet knowing that we are a part of God's big plan to redeem and restore and renew creation, that God's heart breaks over the current reality. For those who have no voice for their current situation, for those who aren't aware that there is a source of love and life that is seeking relationship with them. And I wonder if my heart grieves enough. And then I remember there's a mechanism by which the Reformed Church throughout its history has invited people to remember the significance of grief coming before joy. I grew up in a Reformed Church in Baldwin, Wisconsin. It was a small gathering, and and they played by the rules, right? So when the denomination said that you must observe communion and celebrate communion at least four times a year, they heard it only four times a year. And they heard it as only four times a year because they wanted to make sure that it was special. And there was good intention behind that. But there was also this heightened awareness of our unworthiness to participate in what the Lord's Supper invites us to participate in. So this mechanism that I'm inviting you to take advantage of this week has some baggage for me. Because the Reformed Church invited pastors and congregations to encourage their people to prepare for communion a week in advance. They actually have a preparatory service. And on the back of the 50-50 flood relief, you'll find it. Printed word for word out of um, the Reformed Church in America Book of Church Order. Their liturgies and confessions. And it's an invitation for us to examine our lives. Now, in the church I grew up in, it was used, my experience at least, was that it was used as a, as a heavy hand to, to remind us of, of just how broken we really were in case we weren't aware of that. And that's not the intention at all. The intention flows out of what Brueggemann was talking about, that we need to be honest with ourselves. We need to grieve the ways in in which we are aware of brokenness within our own lives and within the world. And then to take steps, active steps to reconcile, to be made right, to move in the direction of on earth as it is in heaven. So this morning we're going to walk our way through this preparatory service. And I invite you to take it with you. And if anything happens to to poke your heart as we walk through this, as you think of ways in which it's inviting you into a place where there might be pain, where there might be grief within your own life, within your own heart, then I encourage you to listen and pay attention this week. 
The portion that you're invited to uh, respond is in bold under the prayer of confession. But I'll walk us through the exhortation to self-examination. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, we propose to celebrate together with the help of God the sacrament of the Lord's Supper next Lord's Day. We come to the table to commune with our Lord. We commune in awe and reverence for the place where we stand is holy ground. Here the Lord offers us the manna of life. If we are to experience this celebration with our Lord and be nourished by the Spirit, let us examine ourselves first. Then eat the bread and drink from the cup. The benefit is great. If with penitent hearts and living faith we receive the Lord's Supper, let us acknowledge our sin before our merciful God with full intention of amending our lives. Let us make restitution for all injuries and wrongs done to others. Let us forgive those who have offended us as we ourselves have been forgiven. All children of the covenant, be reconciled with one another and then come joyfully to the banquet. If you are in need of help and counsel, then go and open yourself to a wise, discreet, and understanding brother or sister in the faith and confess your sin. Receive spiritual counsel so that you may experience assurance of God's pardon and strengthening of your faith. Come, let us ask for the mercy of God. Let us pray. Almighty God, we have sinned against you and one another in thought, word, and deed, in what we have done and in what we have left undone. Therefore, we pray in silence before you. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us to amend what we are and direct what we shall be. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters, our gracious God forgives you your sin, strengthens you by the Spirit, and will keep you in life eternal through Jesus Christ our Lord. Can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you, says the Lord. It's countercultural. It's swimming against this tide of either or, good or bad. It's paradoxical. The idea that preparing our hearts to experience joy and thanksgiving requires grief and honest self-evaluation. It flows against the tide of our culture and it flows against our human intuition. But I agree that the benefit is great, that the work is worth it, that we might become a place where it's okay to weep and to laugh, to be a place where the fullness of life is held rather than shied away from, that we might be like those first 
exiles to return to Jerusalem to acknowledge reality and then turn our gaze to the table that is being prepared before us. A table being prepared in the midst of our enemies. A table that is made available to us only because our God loves us so much that He laid down His very life. That in His death we might experience the fullness of life. And that we might embrace the mystery that if we want life, we need to lose life. That if we want joy, we need to go through grief. Into that mystery, it is my hope and my prayer that we will remember that we are a part of a big, big, big story. That we never navigate this land alone. That we can lean on one another. That we can trust one another. That if there are broken relationships even within the body, they are meant to be restored and renewed. That we have, by God's Holy Spirit, by the Shekinah that was poured out on Pentecost, we have the capacity to restore and renew and make right for the honor and glory of the One who was, who is, and who forevermore shall be. Let us pray. Lord God, thank You. Thank You for Your patience. Thank You for Your persistence. Thank You, Lord, that You are always present. That You are always making all things new. That it's not dependent upon us. But that You are preparing a great homecoming. That You are preparing a place where it will be on earth as it is in heaven. Give us a glimpse of that new heaven, that new earth. Remind us again of what it is that Your heart breaks for. Restore broken relationships, Lord. Renew Your people so that we can say with the fullness of authority that comes with experience, our God is good. Renew us this week. Make us hungry this week that we might smell the bread of heaven that You have invited us to taste. In Jesus' name, Amen.